Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast, Season 7, Episode 15. The foundation is really, to me, the philanthropic heart of the NSCA. We support high school students all the way on up through senior level investigators. And it's just really special for me to be part of the NSCA and the foundation because everything comes full circle. What we do comes back you know, to the athletes. And so I'm not coaching, I'm not directly involved with athletes, but I know what I am doing is still, you know, it's helping athletes in many, many sports. This is the NSCA's coaching podcast, where we talk to strength and conditioning coaches about what you really need to know, but probably didn't learn in school. There's strength and conditioning, and then there's everything else. This is the NSCA coaching podcast. I'm Eric McMahon. Today, we're going to talk about drug testing and anti-doping in elite sport. We have a special guest with us, NSCA Foundation Executive Director, Carissa Gump. She was an Olympian. Carissa, welcome. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So want to dive into your athletic background a little bit. Uh, we've talked a lot about these topics, drug testing, anti-doping. You work uh, as an ambassador for sport and uh, these in drug-free sport uh, with USADA and some different organizations. So I wanted to give you a chance to share a little bit about your athletic background. Uh, let us know about your your weightlifting. Yeah, I started lifting weights when I was 12 years old. It was an after-school intramural program, and my PE teacher just so happened to also have one of the only weightlifting uh, teams for youth athletes in the state of Vermont. And he saw me during PE, running fast, jumping high, flipping around on uh, the, the rings during the gymnastics unit, and he really pursued me to try lifting and come into the weight room. And I did try it in sixth grade. I quit. I tried for a day and I quit because I was the only girl in the weight room. And the next year, my mom started working at the school as the school nurse and the PE teacher started bugging her saying, your daughter's got some untapped athletic potential. She needs to get in the weight room. And ironically enough, he also had several girls that started lifting weights at that time, and they had gone to the junior national championships and placed really well. Uh, one of them even medaled. And so I, I saw that going on and I thought, okay, if they can do it, maybe I can. And so in eighth grade, I went back into the weight room and those same girls were were still in their training. And it really became about you know, a community, uh, hanging out and being being with friends and, and having fun. And I didn't really, you know, realize what else was going on, uh, you know, with lifting. And I trained for two months and qualified for the junior national championships. And that was, I think, two months later. And at that, I placed second in the country in my uh, weight class and age group. And from that point on, I was I was kind of hooked. Olympic weightlifting is a sport that, you know, the sky's the limit. You can always lift more weight. You can always have better technique. And um, that was just really something I thrived on and a challenge. And I, you know, I'd want to snatch 
80 kilos, then I want to snatch 85 kilos, and then I want to just snatch you know, 90. And so there's always, you know, a goal in mind. Uh, there's always competitions to train for, and uh, you just, you really get hooked on it. And with my career, it uh, started again at age 12. I progressed through the rankings as a, a junior athlete, and then I was competing as a junior, but also senior level athlete. I was uh, competing at both junior nationals and senior nationals and junior worlds and senior worlds. So a couple of years, I had a really heavy uh, competition schedule, but it really surprisingly wasn't until uh, 2006 that I realized, okay, I might be able to do this whole Olympic thing. I never saw myself um, in the in the same, you know, line of um, comparison, I guess, as athletes such as Tara Knott, Kara Head, Slaughter, uh, Cheryl Hayworth, Robin Goad, these were all the big names that I looked up to and my role models uh, as a female weightlifter. So 2000 was the first Olympic Games for females to compete in. And those were, those four women were on the Olympic team. So they were, they were my role models. I had you know, pictures printed out of them in my room as inspiration. And, um, but I never really saw myself as, you know, gosh, I could be like them when I grow up. I, I had major, major imposter syndrome, even after um, breaking, you know, junior American records, uh, making teams. And I, I still never saw myself at that level. Um, but in 2006, I had a shoulder injury and I had surgery. And it was during that time that I really recognized that, you know, injuries can make or break an athlete. Um, and I, I lived at the Olympic Training Center for about six years at that time. And I said, all right, I'm I'm stubborn, I'm determined, and I'm not going to let it break me. And so I really hammered down on my focus. I was very scheduled and disciplined with uh, my training with meeting with the the dietitian with sports science i did everything i could do so i knew if i didn't make that team in 2008 i couldn't look back and say man i should have done this i should have done that i had no regrets and you know the the plan really really paid off uh in march of 2008 it was our a secondary qualifier it was actually at the Arnold Classic, uh, which is part of the Arnold Sports Festival, one of my, my favorite events to go to and just watch a multitude of different sports and athletes compete, uh, aside from bodybuilding. Um, and I qualified at that event um, as a uh, the first 63 kilo uh, athlete to uh, qualify for the Olympics. And then I was also sitting number one uh, on the team. So we had four slots available. So it wasn't like one per weight class. It was just overall, you know, pound for pound, who was going to be the best uh, athletes to send to the games to compete. Uh, so I went in then to the actual Olympic trials in May, sitting in first place. And I knew that, you know, it was going to have to take a lot for me to get bumped from my position, but Olympic trials, that's, that's it. That's the final, you know, that's the end of the line. So people will put, you know, weights on the bar to, to, to go for it. Cause you never know what's, what's going to happen. And so I went in, um, I, I was not confident. I was very nervous because I had 
trained and competed with, you know, a group of women that were just really awesome, strong athletes, very focused. And I knew what they were capable of. Um, so at the end of the Olympic trials, I went from first place to second place. Um, and I really don't remember much about that day. I think I was in shock for, for quite a while, um, just to know that it had happened. Um, it's something that I had, you know, trained for, for a very long time, but only really set my sights on to focus and hammer down on things, you know, a year and a half to two years prior, um, to that. But I really attribute that time to one, I, I, came up with a plan. I, I set out a plan and I followed it. But two was, even though I was recovering from my shoulder surgery, I was still in the gym. I wasn't doing overhead lifts. Um, I was squatting like crazy. Um, my squats, my legs have always been really strong. Um, but during that time of rehabilitation, I had did uh what did I, I did 150 kilos for uh a triple in the front squat um there's no way I would ever have 150 kilos on my shoulders in a clean um I don't even know if the world record is 150 kilos um but I got my legs so strong that I knew if I cleaned something I was always going to be able to stand up out of it um so I didn't you know hunker down in my dorm I didn't you know just sit and eat and veg out. Um, I was still in their training. It wasn't snatching and clean and jerking. Um, but it was still, you know, I was in there, I was mentally and physically, uh, you know, training to be, to be strong. So, um, the other thing I do want to say is, you know, I said, I did everything I physically possibly could in order to make that um, but one of those things I did not do was drugs. I am a very big advocate for um, anti-doping in sport. Uh, clean sport is really, really important um, to me, you know, just for a fair, you know, a, a fair playing field, but also, you know, integrity of the sport and integrity of, you know, the, the athlete. And personally, um, weightlifting is unfortunately a sport that, has a stigma for, you know, high drug usage. And up until a couple of days ago, it was on the chopping block for the 2028 Olympic Games. And I'm really, really proud to say that all of the efforts made um, by the International Weightlifting Federation paid off. And we will be going to LA and we will have a team. Um, I will be there watching uh, with my kids. I'm going to be really excited because that's also the 20 year anniversary of um, when I competed. So that'll be a really uh, special moment. But a couple of years ago, I started to really be a little bit more vocal um, with uh, the anti-doping um, initiative because it is something I, I really believe in. And I have stood on stage next to athletes that I can guarantee you were not clean athletes. I, I could identify that by, um, you know, physical characteristics um, and attributes that that they had. Um, and it, it's just something that, you know, gets me fired up. So I started um, working a little bit with uh, USADA, the United States Anti-Doping Agency. They're based in Colorado Springs. Um, they were established, I think, in 2000. Um, and most people know them um, for, you know, the people that got Lance Armstrong. Um, so they are 
the agency in charge of enforcing anti-doping rules for athletes in the Olympic and Paralympic Games. Uh, they also have partnerships with other sport entities, um, but the NCAA is not one of them. So I'm guessing a lot of the coaches that are listening, um, they're familiar uh, with drug-free sport who um, administers um, drug testing for collegiate level athletes. But um, anti-doping is you know, really an area of sport that not a lot of people talk about. They really don't know about it. Um, but the, uh, the one thing is, is in the United States, for sure, I can guarantee you, they take it very, very seriously. Um, 2005 and 2006, I was the most drug tested athlete in the United States, even more than Lance Armstrong, um, at that time. So, uh, I don't remember the exact number, but, you know, they, we spent a lot of time together. Um, you know, they would come knock on my door at five o'clock in the morning and, you know, I'd wake up and I'd give them a urine sample and, uh, people don't realize with USADA, uh, the urine sample is not, here's a cup, go into the bathroom and provide a sample. Uh, it's let's go into the bathroom and you're going to provide a sample and we're going to watch and make sure you are not tampering or using someone else's urine or using, um, you know, a device or, or something um, to, you know, pass a drug test. So um, they're, they're the real deal. They mean business. Wow. Yeah. The obviously weightlifting is something that's embedded within strength and conditioning. Uh, I loved when you were telling your story about, you know, this is an individual sport weightlifting, but you really love the camaraderie and team aspect and, and community aspect of it. And that came through and just how you presented your experience. And, and it's really cool. You went from the only girl in the weight room to an Olympian in, in a sport that uh, you're now a, an ambassador an advocate for uh, this has really shaped your, your career in a way. Uh, of yeah, how, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and we, I mean, that's a whole other topic to get into is just the career progression of, of Olympians uh, with such a time commitment to, to your sport uh, for over so many years. Uh, I loved how you connected with just the process that athletes go through leading up to an Olympic Games. And it is pretty invasive from, uh, you know, when you think about how, people in general population go to the doctor and, and give blood or urine samples, you know, once a year as part of their physical, uh, that's a lot different than someone showing up at your door at five in the morning to, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. And sit down, sit down and watch as, as odd as that sounds. Yeah, uh, they'd show up anywhere. I would be, I could remember being in, in class, um, at, uh, University of Colorado at Colorado Springs campus. And I look at the door and I see the doping control officer and she's got her big, you know, duffel bag with the, the kits that we had to use to provide our samples. And she just looked and waved and I was like, I'll be right there. Um, but I, I still stand, you know, strong to this day. You know, if they were to show up at my front door, I'd be like, all right, let's do it. Um, it's just something that I, you know, really, really believe in. And again, the, the integrity of, uh, of sport is something that's just really, really important to me. 
So how do you see this? You know, what are some of the common misconceptions that athletes or coaches have about anti-doping rules and in testing processes um, from your perspective? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things that I, I've heard athletes say is, you know, oh, they're just out to get me. You know, they're just trying to, to find something because I'm I'm really good at my sport. And no, they're not out to get you. They are ensuring a fair playing field for all athletes to make sure that, you know, it it is fair. Fairness is very, very important. But that that's a really big uh misconception is, you know, they're they're out to get me. They're not out to get anybody. Yeah. It it's random. You know, testing is is randomized. Uh, and I can say from professional sports world, that's that's the way it is too. But you do hear that. Athletes thinking they're being targeted by the leagues or the uh, governing bodies to be checked on, but uh, that isn't the case. And those organizations are in place to, to ensure fairness, even through the testing process. Uh, as an athlete, how did you stay informed about, you know, these, these anti-doping rules and regulations have evolved quite a bit. And then what advice do you have for strength and conditioning coaches just to be aware of the, this, evolution of rules and regulations yeah so again usada is you know the the organization that oversees olympic and paralympic athletes and they provide a tremendous amount of resources even when i was an athlete uh, we would go through uh, a presentation at least once a year every six months to remind us that you know it's it's not in, it's not just intentionally taking uh, you know, prohibitive substances, but also being mindful of any substances that we're taking, because there is a possibility of contamination of products. Uh, there are very few um, manufacturers in the United States that can guarantee that their products are clean and that there's not cross-contamination. And what I mean by that is uh, you may have one company that uses a manufacturer and they're you know, a hundred percent pure whey protein. And then the next batch uh, after, uh, you know, that's, uh, or the batch before that, that was made was, you know, something like, uh, you know, one of those proteins that you see that has all these, you know, crazy claims of, you know, increases motivation and this and that. And it's, you know, like mucho macho protein, like, and then it gets contaminated in with this other, you know, substance that is not intended to have that in. So um, contamination is, is also something to really be aware of that uh, USADA wants to make sure that the athletes know anything that you ingest, you know, eyes, ears, nose, mouth, there is a possibility that it could be contaminated. So they also provide a lot of education on you know, if you're going to use supplements, here are, um, you know, some things to consider that will, uh, you know, hopefully uh, decrease the likelihood that you may have a positive test that you never intended um, having. And I'm sure we've seen things in the media, um, you know, athletes claiming that, you know, something in their their dogs, dog food or medication or something. And, and there's been cases where stuff like that, it has happened and the athlete was innocent. Um, but right now, USADA still does the same things. They provide um, presentations 
uh, to athletes at, at all levels. Uh, they've also created some really great programs uh, called True Sport that helps with uh, educating coaches. They have uh, a thing called Global Dro, uh, drug reference online where athletes can check the status of their medications if they are allowed or not allowed. And if they are not allowed, they have a process that they can go through to get a therapeutic use exemption uh, where a doctor says, you know, yes, so-and-so does need, um, you know, Adderall. They, they have, you know, a medical diagnosis of ADHD. They're not taking it to, um, you know, for performance enhancing. Um, and then they also have another great resource called Supplement Connect where um, the athletes can understand the risks that are associated with dietary supplements. So um, USADA, great, great resources, and they continue to, you know, really fight the good fight of, of anti-doping, um, you know, in the U.S., but really being great examples to the rest of the world and all the other countries um, with, with uh, doping programs. Um, and then the uh, second part of your question, I've already forgot what it was. I'm sorry. No, all good. Strength and conditioning coaches. You know, we need Strength to educate ourselves. Coach about how to uh, help support our athletes in this area. And, you know, you've listed so many resources that USADA has, and I'm going to, I took some notes down. We're going to add these to the show notes uh, to uh, make sure that our coaches have access to the the wealth of information that USADA provides. Uh, yes. You know, what advice do you have for strength and conditioning coaches who, are working with athletes or their athletes are maybe have comments or thoughts and opinions on drug testing. How should we deal with that? Yeah, I think from a, from a strength and conditioning uh, coach perspective, um, exactly what I said about, you know, being mindful of what the athletes are, what are they ingesting outside of, of training? Uh, what are they, you know, eating? What are they drinking? What supplements um, and really educating the athletes that, you know, there's risks involved when they take dietary supplements and they need to take them at their own risk. And they are, you know, they're responsible um, for it, but not also from just a, a performance uh, perspective, but you could have an underlying medical condition that you might not know about. And it, um, you know, it may interfere, you know, the supplement you're taking may interfere with that. Um, you may be taking medication already for something and it could, you know, weaken, you know, the medication that, that you're taking. So, um, just really being aware of, you know, what are the athletes taking? Um, you know, is it, you know, something that, is it safe? Is it, is it necessary? Um, but probably just to, you know, really use that food first kind of mentality, um, because that's, you know, to me, that's safe. And that's one of the, you know, strategies that, that I used when I was competing was, you know, if I, if I need extra, you know, if I need to gain weight, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to eat more, um, you know, I'm going to add more protein, um, you know, to my, to my diet. So, um, supplements really, you know, that's, that's one of the, the biggest things for, for coaches, I think, to, to be mindful of, but also, you know, if they're, if the athlete is Olympic or Paralympic athlete or, you know, NCAA athlete, you're in compliance with, um, you know, their, 
their regulations because, you know, any coach would hate to see their athlete inadvertently, um, you know, penalized for, you know, making a really stupid decision that could have been prevented. Yeah. And we hear about these often in the news with different countries, different athletes. And uh, these are these are really sticky situations. Um, I'm thinking of the uh, Russian figure skaters that are, you know, and the medals being, uh, it, it's unfortunate for the, I think team USA athletes who are sort of sitting in limbo waiting for their medals on oh, totally. totally what may or may not be medical related or all these, all there, there's so many different, uh, scenarios that we hear about in the media and, and it's, uh, it's a tough area to regulate. So one thing that comes through loud and clear, the importance of educating and staying informed. Uh, it is the responsibility of the athlete and the coaches, because even through the best of efforts, these organizations are doing the best they can, but it is, uh, it is a challenging area to regulate. And, uh, it, you know, I think that's just the reality of it. I don't know if it really ever can be a completely clean process uh, because because there's so much individuality and we're dealing with elite athletes, right? So who's to say that these elite athletes have the same physiology and biomechanics that that the rest of us do that these these norms are based on. Um, and I know there, there's just so much there, you know, there's so much there in terms of nutrition, one area in sport right now, we've seen a growth of dietitians uh, making their way into elite sport. I'm sure with uh, the USOPC and your experience there, you've, you've had experience working across a whole realm, not just strength and conditioning coaches of professionals. Uh, I'd love to have you share from that Olympic experience, you know, what was it like having different professionals in different areas? You have mental skills professionals, you have uh, dietitians, strength and conditioning coaches, sports science. Uh, that's a huge emerging theme in our field right now, that integrated approach, athlete-centered approach, if you will. What was your experience like with that? Yeah, um, I did think of one other thing that I would really emphasize too for strength coaches to talk to their athletes about. Um, and it goes back again to integrity. Um, you know, the athletes may may deliberately decide, you know, I'm going to use XYZ uh, for my performance enhancement. And the thing is with, uh, I know with USADA, if an athlete tests positive, that is public knowledge. That goes on their website, that goes to the national governing body of the athlete, and it's out there for the rest of the world to see. It's on, you know, if you Google somebody's name, that, you know, that could come up. I have seen it um, picked up even by the Associated Press with people's local newspapers. So, um, you know, keep in mind if, you know, an athlete is tempted, um, you know, it's not just a decision that it will affect them right then and there. You know, they could go for a job interview in five, 10 years and someone say, well, tell me about, uh, you know, we saw, we saw you tested positive for, for this drug, you know, and it's, it goes way deeper, um, than testing positive. So, um, you know, just have coaches remind athletes of that integrity in sport, not just on the field, but off the field is, is really important. Um, and then to your, to your next question, 
Uh, I've lived at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs for almost 10 years. And the idea of the training center was everything you needed was right there on campus for you. Uh, I worked with a amazing um, dietitian, nutritionist uh, named Adam Corzin. He spent, I think, almost the last eight, 10 years um, as the director of performance nutrition for the Green Bay Packers. And he was really instrumental for me as far as uh, maintaining my weight and learning to eat healthier and make uh, better choices to, to fuel my body. I was training a lot, so it was really hard uh, for me to keep weight on. So we had to come up with, you know, ways that I could keep the weight on and snacking and, you know, different, different meals and increasing protein and carbs and all that. So Adam was, was really, really huge. Um, I had a wonderful sports psychologist, Sean McCann. I worked with him for, for years. I would have, um, performance anxiety when I competed. I love to train, but when I got on the platform on stage, that was, you know, a whole other, a whole other feeling for me, even though it was still snatching and clean and jerking, that wave of emotions was, was really, really intense. And then one of the folks that I am, I, I look back and I, I had no idea um, what an amazing uh, person, smart, educated, just like, you know, one of the godfathers for uh, sports science, um, I got to work with Mike Stone. I had no idea. Um, he was just, you know, Doc Stone down in the lab and we'd go in and, you know, we'd, we'd do uh, stuff on the force plates. We'd do mid-thigh isometric pulls and um, no idea that he was, you know, who he was in, in our industry. So uh, again, really surrounded by some some top notch people that that helped me, you know, get to get to the Olympic Games and and perform. But having those folks was you know really instrumental. I I couldn't have done it alone. And USOPC used to have a, a tagline: the team behind the team, and they they really really were. And I remember when I made the team, I was asked to, you know, to sign lots of pictures and, and autographs. And I remember writing on them for certain people, we did it because we did do it. It wasn't me. I was lifting, but if it weren't for having those folks in my life and helping me get there, I would never have made it. So me being an Olympian is, yes, it's me, but it is also, you know, my family, my coaches, my teammates, um, everybody was was really a, a huge part of that. And during the opening ceremonies, uh, I remember we we went in, we did our our lap, and then everybody was waiting on the infield as all of the other countries came in. And one of the things they had given us as part of our outfitting when we were there was a cell phone that we could use. And I called my aunts, my uncles. I called my coach, I called my roommate, and I called a, a good friend of mine who was on the 1980 Olympic team, which he unfortunately didn't get to, you know, compete uh, because of the boycott. So everybody was just, it was, they were the reason I got there. It, it just wasn't me and my, you know, physical abilities. It was a 
major, major, you know, group effort and, you know, Doc Stone and, and Adam and Sean were, were part of that journey to get there. I love that. And it connects you to what you're doing now with the NSCA and the community we have. Yes. Yeah. So my, uh, my career path, I, I ended, uh, I retired from weightlifting after the 2008 Olympics, came back early from the Olympics. So I could start college full-time for the first time in my life. I was sitting in class in college and the professor said, tell us something cool you did this summer. And I said, oh, I went to the Olympics. And he goes, what'd you watch? And I said, no, I competed. And he's like, what are you doing here? Why are you in class? And I said, because if I didn't show up for the first week of class, you would have dropped me. (laughs) So I went, you know, hardcore and uh, graduated uh, a year and a half later, started working as a uh, contract position with the USOPC, uh, overseeing uh, Olympic Day celebrations, and then uh, started like the week after I graduated college, uh, working with the Team USA Athlete Career Program, where I worked with athletes who were transitioning from sport, helping them put together their resumes, um, you know, interview skills, stuff like that, so they could be prepared for the next journey. And during that time, I was meeting with all the executive directors of the national governing bodies, and I met uh, the executive director at weightlifting, and he said, I, I want you to come work for me. And I said, you know, gosh, I it's weightlifting, of course, you know. So I worked at USA Weightlifting for six years, and then I left there in 2016 and came on over to the NSCA uh, to be their first staff member of the NSCA Foundation. Um, I've been the executive director for almost seven years uh, in December overseeing grant, scholarship, and assistantship programs. So uh, the foundation is really, to me, the philanthropic heart of the NSCA. We support students all the way, uh, high school students, all the way on up through senior level investigators. And it's just really special for me to be part of the NSCA and the foundation because everything comes full circle. What we do comes back, you know, to the athletes. And so I'm not coaching, I'm not directly involved with athletes, but I know what I am doing is still, you know, it's helping athletes in many, many sports. It's helping, um, you know, special pops, it's helping tactical athletes. Um, so I I really, really love my job. I, I just, I'm so excited and, and happy that I, I get to do what I do every every day and, and be part of uh, the strength and conditioning community. I want you to break down a little bit of what the NSCA Foundation does, but I think one one thing I see that's really great about the foundation is it works across the breadth of really everything the NSCA provides in, in terms of our research community, uh, putting uh, funding research opportunities, uh, even in the, on the coaching side, many coaches have graduate degrees and have to undertake research as part of uh, their master's or doctoral requirements uh, just to complete their degrees. So while it is our research community, when you look at research funding, it does impact the coaching community, but there's also equipment grants and uh, scholarships for minorities and underrepresented communities uh, within the NSCA. Uh, Break down 
what coaches need to know about the NSCA foundation uh, and, and where to look for that info. Yeah. So I, I look at the NSCA as, as you said, you know, just a, we have a lot of intellectual diversity within our community. And when I started with the foundation, we were very heavily research focused. And so over the last seven years, we have continued to add grants and scholarships that are um, focused on, you know, those other areas of, of membership that we have. So we have the military CSCS support grant. This helps uh, individuals who are enlisted or retired sit for their CSCS, uh, as well as take an exam prep. We have a CPT support grant, same thing, provides them with the opportunity to sit for the CPT, provides some textbooks, as well as other uh, resources through um, the uh, training the older adult um, organization. Um, so we have, uh, you know, those different opportunities as well as our coaching advancement grant, which uh, these areas focus on exactly that, helping coaches advance. And they include equipment grants for you to, um, you know, if, if you have a smaller weight room and, you know, you're, you're doing a lot with a little, we have those opportunities. Uh, we have the Dr. Borden Coaching Advancement Grant, which is to support someone who is a um, USA Weightlifting Level 1 coach, but a NSCA member who hasn't taken their CSCS yet. So this grant allows them to take their USA Weightlifting Level 2 and sit for a CSCS. So um, just a couple different areas there. We also have uh, conference attendance scholarships. This could be for registration or for uh, young professionals who have never attended a national conference. We have um, scholarships that will support airfare, travel, hotel, uh, food. Um, so we have a variety of different opportunities and scholarships too, um, even assistantships, which is a, um, I say it's a, a really glorified internship. Uh, for a young professional recently certified, and they'll be paired up with someone who is an RSCC, and that person will serve as a mentor, and we pay a $10,000 stipend for uh, five months to that young professional. So we have a lot of opportunities. Uh, I'd encourage you to go to the NSCA Foundation uh, website, nsca.com forward slash foundation, and then we have links to the grants, scholarships, and assistantship program so you can spend some time on there and, and see um, you know what the, the qualifications are and, and read the descriptions. But um, we'll, we probably have something for you. And then if you are working with any athletes that say, you know, hey, coach, I really think your job is cool, um, you know, send them our way as well. We have opportunities uh, for them to uh, apply and um, take advantage of. Yeah, no, this is perfect. I I love the work that the foundation does. Uh, so thank you. And uh, we we have a lot of volunteer opportunities open every fall and in, in going into the winter months uh, with the NSCA and the foundation. So if you're looking to get involved with the NSCA, we always encourage you to look at all the different opportunities that exist. And that includes the foundation uh, and being involved in some of those uh the leadership of an organization and we all want to advance to to leadership roles or many of us as we sort of go along this coaching journey from assistant to head coach 
and and we're we're seeking more advancement and there are leadership opportunities within the NSCA. So Carissa, thanks so much. There's going to be a lot of links in the show notes for this episode because I want to include the USADA uh, section that we talked about and also all the links to the foundation resources. Uh, if any of our listeners, coaches, aspiring coaches want to reach out to you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, email is is the best way. Uh, Carissa, C-A-R-I-S-S-A, period, gump, G-U-M-P, at nsca.com. That's the the best way to get in touch with me. And um, I'll do everything I can to help. And if I can't, I'll find somebody that can. Perfect. Thanks so much for your time today, Carissa. Uh, you're, you're doing a lot for the strength and conditioning community. And we appreciate that. To all our listeners, thanks for tuning in and taking the time to learn about a topic. Maybe we don't talk about enough uh, drug testing, fair play within sport. That is a important part of our, uh, what we do, the ethics of strength and conditioning and coaching, uh, and how we convey those values to our athletes and also opportunities to advance our own careers with the NSCA foundation. So thanks for tuning in. And also a special thanks to Sorenex exercise equipment. We appreciate their support. Thanks for listening to another episode of the NSCA coaching podcast. We value you as a listener, just as we value your input as a member of the NSCA community to take action and get involved, check out volunteer leadership opportunities under membership at NSCA.com. This was the NSCA's coaching podcast. The National Strength and Conditioning Association was founded in 1978 by strength and conditioning coaches to share information, resources, and help advance the profession. Serving coaches for over 40 years, the NSCA is the trusted source for strength and conditioning professionals. Be sure to join us next time.